You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Be in Ephesians chapter 6 again this morning. Um, we're going we're to we're specifically focus on verses 13 through 14, but I think it's important for us this morning to just see the context. Um, so I want to read for you Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, so that we have that as a framework uh, before we focus on verses 13 and 14. So um, I hope that you guys are there. I'm going to begin in verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having Put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. The words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Please bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I ask that you would come and do Again, what I am completely incapable of doing, what no human is capable of doing, that is to bring your word to bear on our hearts, our minds, and our lives this morning. Father, please come and through the preaching of your word, please please reveal more of yourself to us. Remind us that we are not the hero of the story and that you are the hero of the story. Father, I beg you to come and by the power of your spirit unleash the of the love of Christ on us through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. So last week we, um, we dove into uh, um, this section on the armor of God. I've uh, been in Ephesians now for uh, well over a year. I've looked forward to this section um, since we began. Um, we learned last week, as we, as we looked at just the first few verses, I think we looked at verses 10, 11, and 12, and, and as we did that, we learned uh, that God calls us to take a stand, right? God calls us to take a stand. He, he calls us to take a stand in the strength of the Lord, not in our own strength, and to take a stand in the protection of the Lord, because without the protection of the Lord, we have no hope, and to take a stand uh, in the right fight. Lots of fights that we could take a stand in that could be the wrong fight that could get us off track. The reality for us is that we live in a spiritual war zone, right? We live in a spiritual war zone. We have, we have a very real enemy that we face out to get us, a very real spiritual enemy. His name is Satan. He comes to steal, kill, destroy. He is a liar and the father of all lies. There is no truth in him whatsoever. He is a lion, a lion seeking to devour. And yet at the same time, I think, as we learned last week, Satan is just a little kitty on a leash held by the hand of a sovereign God. Right? So we have nothing to fear like we saying about today, yet it's important for us to get the reality and get this truth in our minds and in our hearts that we live in a spiritual world. War zone. Satan's chief aim 
has a chief aim for you. His chief aim for you is to coerce you into believing lies. To coerce you into believing lies. Believing lies about who God is. To believe lies about who you are. And to believe lies about how you are to live. Again, the reality is that the the fight that we're in is not necessarily out there. The fight that we are in is right here inside of each and every one of us. Our heads, our hearts, our hands. Our heads meaning what we believe. Our hearts meaning what we desire. Our hands meaning what we do, how we behave. All of that is under attack constantly in this present darkness. Those are the phrase, that's the phrase that Paul uses. So the Christian life is like a war zone, right? But it's not the kind of war zone that you may think it is. Um, We definitely live in a material world, in a physical world. And the subtle but, but very deadly temptation for us is to live like the war that we are meant to fight is merely in the physical realm against physical enemies. But what Paul does is he flips that thinking upside down when he explains that our battle is not against flesh and blood. How hard that is to hold on to. We are flesh and blood, and we live in a flesh-filled world. Our battle is against a spiritual enemy. His name is Satan, and you and I are public enemy number one. Spiritual enemy number one is God the Father. We are his enemies. We don't stand a chance apart from Christ against him. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, I think I have this passage on the screen maybe for you in the slides. If not, you can just hear it. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, Paul says that although we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Get that? We walk in the flesh. Interesting that Paul would use that same language of walk. You might remember Ephesians 3 themes. What? Sit. What was the second one? Walk. Stand. So when you read Pauline literature, when you read his epistles and his letters, you find he uses many of the same themes all throughout. Oftentimes he begins with, hey, get this understanding in your head and in your mind, in your heart, that this is who you are, this is who God is, so this is how you are to walk then. So he uses some of the same language to the Corinthian church, completely different church that he helped to plant as well. Although we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For what? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Get that. The weapons that you and I have been given are not fleshly weapons. But they have divine power. To what? Divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what are strongholds, Paul? What are you talking about? Well, he moves on. He says, we destroy arguments. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So if you're, if you're tracking with me, you see here in what Paul is saying that our battle is actually against opinions and arguments that are contrary to the revelation of who God is and how God interacts with humanity. This is commonly called the battlefield of the mind and the battlefield of the heart. And what Paul is doing is he's instructing us to bring every thought that we have into captivity by doing what? Putting on the mind of Christ so that we might know him and that we might obey him. So it's interesting if you think about this for a minute, what Paul is saying is, hey, get your mind, those lofty opinions, lofty arguments that are contrary to the knowledge of Christ, that are running rampant in your heart and in your head, Get those things under control. And the only way you can do that is by putting on the what? The mind of Christ. Need to think like Christ. Need to know Christ. Need to constantly be digesting who is Christ. How does Christ apply to what's happening here? That's the fight. That's the real fight. People that are tapped out in the corner, getting pinned, are folks who have not figured out yet how to surrender to Christ. Okay? Now you might be saying, and I would ask this question too, I understand that there's a big spiritual battle inside mind, heart, head, heart, hands. I get what you're throwing down. Get this this direction. 
But isn't there a battle in the physical realm still? Right? Isn't there really still a battle in the, in the physical realm? Isn't there a battle to preserve biblical morals and biblical ethics in this present darkness? Isn't there? Right? Um, and there certain are, certainly are, certainly many battles uh, in, the, in the physical realm that, that are important. Many battles in regards to the preservation of biblical morals and ethics. And when you think about morals, morals is what you believe. Ethics are how you live. Simple um, explanations the way I have loved to explain it for years. Morals, what you believe. Ethics, what you do. And your ethics are always a reflection of your morals. Um, the reality, the world that we live in, this present darkness, Paul calls it, um, the world that we live in is like a runaway freight train, isn't it? Isn't it like a runaway freight train just like headed towards derailment at any moment? Doesn't it feel that way when you examine where we're at as a country and a culture and a, and a world? Society um, as, as a whole um, is like a melting pot of opposing values, opposing morals, and opposing ethics. Not just opposed to each other, but you don't have to look very far to understand and know intrinsically that the world that we live in is actually opposed rebelliously against the mind of Christ that we're called to put on. Think about this topic of truth for a minute. Now, this is a beast of a topic. I feel like I could spend like six weeks here. Entire, entire like commentary series and video series put out on just the topic of truth. So we'll spend the next 30 minutes or so just talking about truth for a little bit in prayer that the Holy Spirit will come and do what he does, which is to set people free through the knowing of the truth. Not just knowing of the truth conceptually, but knowing of the person who came and embodied the truth, who is Jesus Christ, resurrected, right? <laughs> In our society, truth has become relative. And relative means that um, the truth is open to individual interpretation. Truth has also become pluralistic, which means that when my truth says that your truth is a lie, then we have to agree to disagree and then live in like this gray space of truth and lies together in the same melting pot. How about that? Like that's, like just think about that for a while. That's dangerous. And the outcome of that kind of society is the society that we live in right now. It's a society that values tolerance and entitlement over truth and justice. Okay? Real justice. Biblical justice with God at the head. Think about this for a minute. If truth has become relative and it's also become pluralistic, then intolerance and entitlement, if those are deeply held values in our culture, then all of these things that I'm about to say are like absolute powder kegs. I'm not talking about little firecrackers that you set off in the street. I'm talking about powder kegs, right? Like you don't have to go very far on social media to find the powder keg exploding all over the place in regards to these things. This is what's happening behind the scenes. Relativism, pluralism, tolerance, and entitlement. Another thing I want you to think about, when you think of these concepts and you're putting them all together, come back to the idea of morals and ethics, what you believe and what you do, right? Those two things, moralism and ethical um, action, the authority on what's true in those two areas. Who do you think the authority is in our society? The authority I believe, has been taken captive by a society that is full of broken human beings. We have a tendency to think that we are the ultimate judge and authority of what's right and wrong, what we should believe and how we should live. That's the way we live our lives. I do this all the time, right? All of us do this. We think that ultimately we are the authority who decides. Broken human beings have become arbitrators of what's true and false. Our society around us, the society that we're growing up in, living in, argues that we will not tolerate intolerance. Let that sink in. <laughs> we will not tolerate intolerance. I mean, isn't that like an oxymoron? <laughs> we'll not tolerate your intolerance. In other words, 
I will not tolerate your intolerance of the values or the morals or the ethics that I believe are right and true. While I demand, because I am entitled to you tolerating me. That's the culture we're living in. Does anybody else here think that there's something wrong with what I'm describing? Something intrinsically really broken? Cyclical belief. It's cyclical thinking. Cyclical arguing. Cyclical lofty opinions that need to be taken under captivity to the mind of Christ, right? Um, uh, Furthermore, we live in America, so I put this together. Disagree with me all you want, but this is just... This statement, I think, is interesting. If, if I buy into this kind of belief and, and life, then it's my right to demand all of these things of you. I'm entitled to you tolerating me. Um, and and, and if, you, if you don't, then you're oppressing me. You get this victim mentality that kind of comes into our American culture, too, that's become, I think, really rampant. Um, and you're oppressing me. You're taking away my God-given right to American life, my God-given right to American liberty, my God-given right to American pursuit of justice. Some say happiness. This is the melting pot of our quote-unquote free American society. We live in it. It's an absolute mess, don't you think? It's an absolute mess. If we're not careful, then what can happen? My fear is this is... Maybe what happened, even in the last week, even as we came into the first portion of this series, is that the things that I'm talking about here in our American culture, those are such hot-button issues that in our gospel communities, that's all we talked about as a church. I don't know if anybody else felt that or got that. The, the, The desire here is to apply this passage to our culture, personally, us, Um, and not get distracted and sidetracked by the fight that is actually secondary to the primary fight. The primary fight is spiritual in nature, right? It's not physical, yet there's spiritual background to all the physical things we live in. But the physical things are so easy to talk about, right? All the physical battles we could get caught up in are so easy to talk about because it's fun, maybe. If we're not careful, it can be really easy to get caught up in this stuff. And I'll be honest with you, I was tempted to just not even mention anymore any of the things that are happening in our American culture in hopes that we could just focus on what what I think Paul is saying here. But I don't think I'd be faithful as a preacher to God's word to not apply it this way because this is what we're living in, right? So we have got to wrestle with this in a way that I think is faithful and appropriate. And that's what I hope to attempt to do today, praying that the Spirit would just do his thing. Because if we get caught up in this stuff as though it is our primary fight, if we think that the physical realm that we live in is our primary fight, um, or, or on the other hand, if we just think that it's not that big of a deal, right? All these things are acting like powder kegs in our culture, whether it be um, um, ethnic struggle or social economic struggles or political struggles um, or, or, uh, or even just reform in our culture. If we, if we get caught up in those things on the one hand, becomes a primary fight, or on the other end of the spectrum, if we just begin to think that, I don't need to pay any attention to that, I I think think we'd be wrong at either end. I think there is a middle ground here. We cannot make cultural reform our primary fight. We cannot also, on the other side, ignore the fact that the moral and ethical decline of the nation we live in is definitely declining. We can't do either. can't ignore it. Can't make it our primary fight. So my prayer is that the, the, the Lord, through this, I think this passage would bring us um, to the middle. Because like, the question becomes, okay, I get what you're saying, Joe. Um, what are we supposed to do? Right? What are we supposed to do? So verses 13 through 14, Paul says what? Look at it. He says that we must take up the whole armor of God. You may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all, stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, I think the only way to take a stand in the evil days that we live in is to be covered in the armor of God. Agreed? Same page? Okay? The only way to take a stand in this evil day that we live in where 
You see all the moral and ethical decline be covered in the armor of God. And into that, Paul speaks. God speaks through Paul in this passage. Now, actually, this is a fascinating passage, I think. Um, it's fascinating to me, not just on a head knowledge level. It's fascinating to me um, to even just contemplate while living in the current culture we live in that I've just tried to describe. Um, but I'm also, I'm convinced of this. Um, I'm convinced that the culture that Paul wrote this in wasn't far different from what we're living in today. Okay? But sometimes it's easy for us to go, oh, Paul wrote that thousands of years ago, depending upon what your theology is, right? Um, it's easy for us to think, but does that really translate to our American culture that we're in? And that's, that's the job that we need to do is try to apply it. So I want us to think about two different things. I want us to think about the church in Ephesus for a minute, the church culture. So think about that inside the walls, if that's just easiest for you. Um, I also want us to think about that in terms of the culture outside the church in Ephesus. I want to go those two places. I want to try to make some distinctions that I think are faithful um, to the culture that Paul wrote this into. You know that Paul wrote this letter to a church that he planted, right? Um, and, and the church that he planted in Ephesus, um, he planted into a super irreligious culture. Um, I think it's important for us not to forget that Paul is writing this letter from prison. Don't forget where he's at. Put yourself in that place for a minute. He's imprisoned for what? Preaching the gospel. That's what he's in prison for. I, I would make this caveat. I think, I believe, you read all of Pauline literature and, and, and I think all of scripture. I, I am certain that the biblical authors desired reform in their culture, but their primary target was the church. Their primary target, I think, was the church. And, and, and at the same time, I think their, their, their next target outside that was the people outside the church. So the way in which that would happen would be through the preaching of the gospel. And that gets Paul tossed in prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. So I can just see Paul chained to a Roman guard. Um, he's examining this guard's armor. Um, and, and he's prayerfully writing what he believes the church needs to hear about standing firm with the armor of God on. He, 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 he wants, as he's already written, he, he wants the church to get this truth. They need to take a stand in the truth of who God is, one. Take a stand in the truth of who they are in Christ, two. And take a stand in the truth of how they are to live, in light of all that, in a wicked and perverse evil culture. That's, that's the aim, I think, of what the Apostle Paul is writing for. It's important for us to do this kind of work when interpreting the Bible. Otherwise, we, 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 we can just misapply things and misinterpret things real easily. As we've studied, we've learned those things. We've also learned that Paul, Paul is speaking to a mixed audience in his church. Not much different than today. His audience is full of people from vastly different ends of the spiritual spectrum. It's a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, if you were to break it down just simplistically. And I'm going to make an application here that might be painful for you to hear. I, 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 don't, think that, uh, I don't think that what I'm going to say here is going to uh, cover the whole spectrum. And I think there's lots of nuances. But I do think there's definitely some connecting points. So if you bear with me, when you think about the Jews and the Gentiles, who would you apply those two groups to today? I think... As I look at this and as I study it, I think that your Jewish Christians would most closely fit our conservative Christian crowd. And I also think that the Gentile Christians would fit our more libertarian or liberal crowd. Now, everything doesn't translate across, okay? There are definitely nuances, but I think that there's similarities there. Paul is speaking into that crowd. It's important for us to understand the diversity in the church in Ephesus. His audience is a mixture of both, right? And yet, what does Paul do? He speaks to both of these audiences together as one audience. Why? How does he do that? He does that because he's already said this earlier. The dividing wall of hostility that was between them had been torn down. How had it been torn down? 
by the cross of Christ. See, this is what the cross of Christ does. This is what the gospel does. It gives us a brand new set of glasses whereby we see the world not through Jewish lens or Gentile lens or conservative lens or liberal lens. We see it through a what? Gospel lens. A gospel lens. And it breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. You don't have to look very far to see all the hostility between groups of people that call themselves Christians. Paul spoke to both of these groups. This is what the cross of Christ does. It brings people together from various backgrounds. And it reorients their worldview around the gospel of Jesus Christ alone for the glory of God alone. That's the church culture. Now think about the culture outside the church for a minute. It's really important for us. Church culture outside the church culture. The culture outside the church was known for its moral and ethical decline. You don't have to do a whole lot of study on the culture of Ephesus, the culture of Rome, Roman government in that time. Some of the things that were unique to Ephesus specifically, if you've been with us for this series, you know this. Public sexual sin, rampant. You think pornography is bad today? It was bad then. It's different in nature. Public sexual sin was rampant, and it was celebrated in Ephesus. The entire Ephesian culture celebrated this. How did they do it? Through temple worship. Temple worship of a goddess, a multi-breasted goddess. Temple prostitution. Those were money-making industries, major money-making industries. What, what are some of the major money-making industries here in Hastings? Okay. Got a lot of them. Farming industry is probably the biggest. Just... Take that industry out and, and make this the major industry for making money. This is how you made money to support your family was through the sex trade. It wasn't just hidden. It was legal and celebrated. Witchcraft um, wasn't just a backyard hobby. wasn't just a video game. It was part of the DNA of what it meant to be a citizen of Ephesus. Okay? Hear that. A citizen of of Ephesus, making a fortune off your ability to own another human being, that was celebrated, was encouraged. In fact, they tried to figure out how to make it better so that what? So that their slaves could produce more. That's the culture that they were in. So think about how all of that translates from being a citizen in Ephesus to being a citizen of the United States of America. Aren't there similarities, at least not just historically, but also just currently that we're living in that are some current cultural realities similar? Uh, let's not forget this, too, because I don't want you to forget this. Uh, abortion on demand was popular in Roman culture. Popular. We talked about this in our gospel community last week, last week and, and this was an important thought. Um, they didn't have abortion clinics there. They didn't have abortion clinics that we could go protest with signs, and we couldn't, we couldn't throw things on Facebook to protest what was going on there either. What the Roman culture did was far more barbaric than what we do. Don't hear me wrong. Killing babies is wrong, and it's sick. At the end of the day, what the Roman culture did, that Ephesus is in, is far worse. I mean, they had piles of dying babies in the streets. That's how they did it. Piles of dying babies in the streets. The Romans actually practiced not partial birth abortion. Instead, they practiced post-birth abortion. Yeah, it's, it's horrifying. That's a horror movie, right? I have seven children. I can't think. I can't think of any one of those children of mine going through that. And yet, what was it like to be Christian in the Ephesian church? What did it mean to be Christian? What, what did Paul say to his people in, in the Bible? What, what did he say? What did he direct them to do? How did he direct them to, to, to invest their energy? Their lives? How were they to live? How were they to take a stand in the midst of that? And to be known as a Christian in that culture did not mean picketing with signs that heaps accusation upon the heads of the women whose babies are in those piles. No historical documentation I can find. Being a Christian in that culture, this is why I love many of you in this room and what you're doing with adoption. Is similar in that culture to be a Christian meant that you walked up to that pile of babies outside your house and you you grabbed those babies as many of them as you could 
off that pile and you took them into your arms and into your home and you did what you say you believe. Ethics coming out of morals. This is what it meant to care for the poor and to care for the orphan and to care for the widow outside the church family when Paul wrote this. See, everyone in the Roman culture would have known that you are a Christian not by your public protest of what you stood against. They would have known that you were a Christian by your public demonstration of what you were for. Catch the nuance. You see how easy it would be to become deceived by Satan's lies? <clears throat> Somehow, oh, that's the battle I should be fighting. I mean, let's not forget, Satan uses half-truths to get us to walk in disobedience and outside of honoring our Savior. To be a, culture, be a Christian in the Roman culture, in the Ephesian culture, they wouldn't have known by your public protest of what you stood against. They would have known by your public demonstration of what you stood for. Now, doesn't that description, if you think about this, this description of the culture that Paul's writing this letter into, that God is trying to speak into, does this sound vaguely familiar then? <clears throat> Not hard, I don't think, to catch the connections. And into that kind of a mess, then and today, God speaks through Paul again in verses 13 through 14. Hear it again. After all this, hear it freshly this way. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, I can just imagine someone, either in the Ephesian church or in the culture outside of the church, <laughs> truth? What is truth? What is truth, Paul? Is there any, uh, any such thing? Is, is there really any such thing as an absolute truth? As if the answer to that question couldn't be absolute. Think about that. Truth is either absolutely true or it's not. If you're on the second level of that, like, what do you do then? Who is the source of this truth that you speak of, Paul? Right? Who's the source of that truth? And why does this matter? Why is this so important? Who, who cares, Paul, about your religious rantings? I can see somebody in the culture that day. I see people in our culture doing the same thing. I think your brain is going dim, Paul. Been chained to that Roman guard in your prison cell for too long. So th those are the questions. What is truth and who is the source of said truth? Now, that's been a question for centuries, eons. I'd say since the beginning of time, go back to the Garden of Eden. Even. I think since then, especially. Philosophers, scholars, written entire volumes regarding this topic and origin of truth, which is why I say you could spend a long time here. Even Pilate, on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, asks Jesus sarcastically to define the truth. Now, that's interesting to me how ironic that is to be in the presence of the very essence of truth and yet be deceived enough to actually try to kill truth by nailing him to a cross. Now, it's equally mind-boggling if you just track that little bunny trail out for a minute and think about how you really can't kill perfect truth because truth itself is timeless. Truth has always been true. Truth doesn't change. You and I change. Truth doesn't change because our God doesn't change and he is the origin of truth, at least according to the scriptures, which means the scriptures are true. If not, the only other option is that you and I are God. That's a scary place to be for us to be the arbitrators of truth. We are broken. This is, you can't kill perfect truth. It's timeless and eternal. This is why the tomb is empty three days later. Isn't it? You can't kill truth. You can't kill the personification of truth. Doesn't shift with the changing of times. Doesn't, doesn't bow its knee to our every whim and our every desire and our every fear. And Jesus, honestly, you read Jesus. Read the Gospels. Jesus makes it absolutely clear to his disciples that he is the source of truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the word of God, truth, made flesh. All of scriptures are about him. That's what he said on the road to Emmaus. Hey, it's all about me. 
I'll show you how I am the fulfillment of all of that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the author of truth on the one hand, and on the other hand, he is also the book of truth. Truth is perfection. And who's perfect? Jesus is perfect, right? You and I are not. One scholar, I think it was John MacArthur, um, he said that uh, truth, is a self-expression and self-revelation of God in all of his perfection to humanity. Truth is a self-expression and self-revelation of God in all of his perfection to humanity. So, next question, why does this matter? Why is this important? Listen to what Paul says to the Roman church. Um, Romans chapter 1, I think this will be on your screen. Uh, verses 18 through 25. I've kind of selected some pieces of Romans 1, 18 through 25. It's fairly lengthy, and you guys don't want me reading any more than I am already going to. So I've, I, I, you can look at the whole thing in context. I, I selected what I think is really the meat um, of, this, of this passage, at least for, um, for our purpose today. Romans uh, 1, 18 through 25. Listen to what he says. This is why this is so important. Okay? This is why this is so important. Men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Think about that. Men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, squash it, get rid of it, minimize it, make it better or worse, right? Call what is good wrong, call what is wrong good. Suppress the truth. Men by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For for although they knew about God, they did not honor him. Knew all sorts of things about God, got the revelation of God in many different ways, yet they did not live their lives to honor him. They tried to stuff truth Deep into a hole, in the blackness, in the darkness. Did not honor them. They became futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Catch this next piece. They exchanged the truth, if you could actually exchange truth. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Obviously you can, right? You can exchange truth for a lie. And what was the outcome of this? What does it say? The outcome of exchanging truth for a lie is that they began to worship and serve who? The creature. Physical things. Physical people. They began to worship what was in the physical realm, the creature, what has been created, rather than worshiping the creator. Who is blessed forever. God is eternal. And yet we would rather worship that which is broken and not eternal. So a right understanding of relationship with Jesus, who is the author and the embodiment of truth, it's vital to our, 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 our eternal well-being. There's only two roads here. There's no middle gray space here, okay? There are only two roads. You either have the road of truth in Christ, or you have the road of suppressing or quieting, like a suppressor on a gun. Quieting. Just be quiet about that. Don't talk about this. Don't go there. Suppress the truth. Quiet it by believing demonic lies which lead to what? Foolishness, darkness, deception. I know I'm laying a lot on us today, right? I hope you're tracking with me. We haven't even got to the armor yet, right? Other than a piece of truth. Just so integral and so important for us as we think about the other pieces as we get ready to go through them. Like this relationship with the truth that I'm talking about here is so important because without it, what happens to us? We live in bondage. We live in separation from God because what happens is He, God the Father, ceases to be the object of our affections. He ceases to be the object of our affections. And what happens is we make what has been created the object of our affections. Now think about how easy it is to become consumed with a battle to win in the physical realm. And we make that the thing that we worship. It's easy to be deceived. We actually worship a battle rather than worshiping our creator. We worship that which is created rather than worshiping the creator himself. <laughs> physical battle in front of us is not the eternal battle. Hear that. The physical battle in front of us is not an eternal battle. Now it does have eternal consequences. Vast difference, right? The battle itself is not eternal, but the consequences are eternal. The battle in front of us in this life has an end date stamped on it. Our Father in Heaven was a victorious winner of this battle 
long before the foundations of the earth were ever laid, consummated in the day that Jesus died on the cross and then three days later when the tomb was left empty. So we must be careful not to suppress the truth in our addiction to fighting physical battles, in our addiction to worshiping things of the physical nature. That being said, suppressing the truth isn't always outright obvious either. And once you think about that, Suppressing the truth isn't always an outright obvious thing. Our enemy has won more battles in the spiritual realm with tiny, little, itty-bitty distortions of truth rather than with massive, obvious distortions of truth. Like, the battle against Satan is not all shock and awe, air war, where you can see it coming and hear it. The battle against Satan is these tiny, little, Itty-bitty indiscretions, little itty-bitty white lies. A little bit of truth mixed with a lie is still what? A lie. Okay. God's word is clear. Jesus is clear about what is true and false. Let me say what is right and wrong. He's clear. Scriptures are clear. God's revelation to us is clear to those who are being saved. problem is that we don't like to submit to Jesus as the arbitrator of truth. We'd rather make up our own truths or take a little bit of this truth and a little bit of that truth and make it all up into a big old ball of religious half-truths. And what happens then? We lose the point of the truth. Who's the point of the truth? Christ alone. Glory of God alone. I say it again. You and I are not the heroes of the story. I love Chandler. Chandler says so much better than I. You and I think we're David in the story of David and Goliath, but we're not. We're Israel hiding out in the corner, okay? The hero of that story is not David. The hero of that story is God himself who sets people free through the work of one man and three stones. You might remember three nails when you look at that story. You and I are not David. We're not the hero of the story. You need to quit reading the Bible and thinking of the gospel through this idea that it's all about me. I mean, this was the tactic of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? Wasn't his tactic to simply propose little half-truths to coerce Adam and Eve into questioning God so that they would fill in the blank with their own version of truth? Think about Adam and Eve for a minute. Think about how truth for them, the truth of what God's word had said to them, he had spoken to them personally, in person. Think about how that truth of what God had said became relative to the moment. Think about how their belief, their morals, and their behavior, their ethics became relative to their circumstances. About how their desires were controlled by what appeared felt good or tasted good. Man, it just seems like a good thing. We should just get involved in that. Like, right? Just feels good. Let's let's go there. Feels good. Do it. <coughs> That's the pragmatic world we live in. Feels good. Must be from God. That fruit looked tasty. Right? Yeah, for some of you, so is the girl next door. As hot as she is, hell's hotter. That's only Cray statement, not me. So just so you know, I ain't that good at this. <laughs> so just because something looked good, feel good, don't mean that you should be chasing that. Satan doesn't just come at you and be like, hey, you should go do this nasty thing. Typically, it's a very good-looking thing, like that fruit that they chowed into. Adam and Eve's fall into sin began with a suppression of the truth as they listened to Satan's lies. So I want you to think, hoping to blast through this quick, I want you to think about the lies that you listen to in relationship between the armor of God and God's nature. Okay, I want you to think about the lies you listen to here. Um, think about the, the tendency you have to listen to lies about those pieces of armor, his nature, what he calls you to, who he says you are. Number one, think about the truth, right? If truth is relative to your circumstances, then, then your desires, my desires, or the culture that we're born into, um, if we think that truth is relative to all that, then you and I get to create the God whom we can control. Right? Ever been guilty of that? Made that mistake? Tried to control God or manipulate him into doing for you what you wanted to do? Two, think about right standing, the, the breastplate of righteousness. If my right standing, if my righteousness, my ability to stand in the presence of God can be earned by my behavior, um, then God becomes like a disengaged 
father uh, or a cruel taskmaster on either end of the spectrum. When I'm sinning, he's disengaged. He ain't paying attention. Like he's, he's over there. I'm over here doing my thing. Or on the other end, and you got to hide from that guy because he's coming after you all the time to get you, right? He's a cruel taskmaster. One of those two, if it's designed on my, rests on my ability. Three, um, peace, the gospel of peace. Our feet covered in this, right? Wherever we go, wherever we walk, the gospel of peace keeps us walking well. Peace is based upon my circumstances. Anybody here ever go through a really tough circumstance and feel like, man, my life is a wreck and your peace is all gone? If peace is dependent on, based upon my circumstances, then what does God become like? God becomes like a bellhop or an errand boy. He becomes a bellhop or an errand boy. I can control him. My obedience to him becomes the bargaining chip. I'm going to obey you, God. I'm going to obey you today. Better give me some peace, God. It's the bargaining chip that I give him for getting me out of hot water. Or, or it's the tip that I give him for getting me what I really want. I wanted that car forever. I wanted that woman forever. I wanted this house forever. I wanted to fight that battle and win it forever. Whatever it is, I don't. whatever you put in there for your physical part of this and piece of this, when you get it, you'll tip God then through your service or your performance or your giving, whatever it may be. That's peace. Faith. Faith is something that I can just muster up, pull up my bootstraps and my own strength. Then God's ability becomes enslaved to my ability. God can only do what I am actually able to do. You ever been guilty of that? Or ever been guilty of trying to obey God in your own strength? Thinking that his strength is dictated by yours? Salvation. Think about salvation. The helmet of salvation. Interesting that it goes over your head. Your brain needs this more than it needs TV or Facebook or anything else. Salvation is dependent upon my list of good works done to outweigh the list of sinful works done that I will ultimately become the arbitrator of what's right and wrong, right? I make up the rules so that I can give myself points on a sliding scale. I like my sliding scales because in my sliding scale, I can tip the scale down a little bit and make what I just did okay, even though I know deep down inside that it's wrong, but I can make it okay for now. But heaven forbid if you ever get there, you ever do what I did, you ever do that. And I, I, I use God. All this gray space that I live in, God just becomes my homeboy, right? Just along for the ride. God will give me a little occasional pat on the back. He'll give me a little encouraging word when I stumble and fall while I'm trying to save myself. How often do you catch yourself treating God like he's just your buddy that gets invited over a few times per week to hang out? Gospel community on Wednesday, Sunday. Sunday gathering. Uh, maybe a few more times I'll go, maybe I'll go by the church and rake the leaves or something or go hang out with somebody at the the hospital, kinds of this trade-off system, manipulation. God's word. If God's word is open to my personal interpretation, then my word trumps what God has actually said, and he becomes subject to my interpretation. His law, then, becomes a list of do's and don'ts. And those lists of do's and don'ts, they're used to justify my life, beat other people up, beat myself up for failing. Jesus gets reduced to a great example of a good man at best, I try to prove how I'm just as good as he is, right? I prove just how I'm just as good as he is. When, when was the last time you tried to justify yourself with your list of things done right or done better than the last time? Or, or maybe this is one I think all of us want to do, done better than that guy across the room, that gal. Number seven, prayer. Another piece of the armor. Prayer is merely a means of getting what I want then God becomes my personal vending machine, right? <clears throat> if that's all prayer is, opportunity to get what I want, God's a vending machine. I run over to him when I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I, and I want something. My appetite's out of control. God, just make this go away. Make this better. Drop some coin in the machine. The machine doesn't give me what I wanted. Gives me something that doesn't look very tasty. <laughs> Look at that. What do you do? I don't get what you want. Shake the machine. God, what are you doing? Yell at the machine. God, what is wrong with you? Can't you see what I want? Punch the machine, maybe, for not giving me what I want. Then I go looking for a better machine to drop my coin in. Right? Oh, haven't we all do this? 
I hope you guys know that like as I'm preaching this, I know this because I do this. When was the last time you treated God like a vending machine in prayer? Now let me ask you this question. Uh, how many of the things that I just listed, those seven things, how many of those are you guilty of getting wrong? You ever make the mistake of distorting the truth in any of these areas of the armor and nature of God? Do you know what the Bible calls those little things that we call mistakes? Hold on to that question. I want to take one more crack. Look at verses 13 through 14 one more time. Please look at it close. Take up the whole armor of God. You may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, the way we often hear this teaching is that we need to do something. Don't we? Aren't you hearing that? We need to go do something to put this armor on. We need to study more, make the truth more central to our lives. We need to live more rightly to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need to reach way down deep inside, conjure up the faith. We need to withstand this storm. We need to remove ourselves from the world and all of its conflicting agendas. Or we need to go to war to annihilate everything that seeks to steal our peace, right? We need to recommit our lives to Jesus and get saved at least three or four times per year or day by saying the sinner's prayer over and over and over again at some camp or conference that you go to. You need to listen to more sermons, need to read more books, boil God's word down the neat, tight little action steps. Ah, I hate that one because that's me all the time, right? Ah. Ah. Get all down, little neat little action steps. We can pat ourselves on the back. Done better at obedience than we did last week. We've done better than that guy or that gal. To pay Pray more, pay more too. Pray more. We need to pray more consistently to get this armor on fully. That's what we need to do. That's what you need to do. That's what I need to do. You ever thought those things, ever been taught those things, whether explicitly or just implicitly? <coughs> Read this passage, walk away from it hearing that. Ever believe those things to be true? Run out of the room, give all your effort to doing these things so that your armor can be more secure. You know what the problem with this is? What the problem with this kind of teaching is? You go back to the one thing you struggle with the most from our previous list. What was the thing you struggled with the most? Maybe it was all of them. You look at the way that we commonly talk about putting our armor on. You might be surprised to notice how me-centered they are. How much I become the hero in putting my armor on. Right? We've been so conditioned to believe that we are the key to putting on the armor of God that we actually distort or suppress the truth that only Christ himself is capable of putting this armor on for us. Think about truth again. Truth is the self-expression or self-revelation of God to mankind regarding who he is, who we are, and how we are. short when we make the armor of God all about what we can do to put it on then we make ourselves the object of our attention follow me worshiping that which is created rather than worshiping creator worship of self flows out of a deeply ingrained desire to not just be like God but to actually be God sit in his throne it's right back to the lie of the garden of Eden again isn't it Do this and you'll be equal to God. Another way of explaining this would be to explain that what we've often heard regarding the armor of God is nothing more than a works-based religion that relies on my effort and what I can do rather than relying on Christ's effort and what he has actually accomplished and done at the cross and the tomb. That's called performance-based religion. That's a performance-centered gospel. It's not good news at all. It's not good news at all. I don't want anything to do with performance-based religion. The reality is that when we make a mistake regarding the armor of God, remember I asked you that question earlier, those little mistakes that we make in all this? When we make mistakes regarding the armor, regarding the nature of God, regarding our identity, regarding our responsibility to live obediently, when we make those mistakes, we get those things backwards, when we suppress the truth here, we fall into something called what? Sin. It's called sin, missing the mark. Sin is missing the mark of perfection. So sin is missing the mark of truth. 
Sin is quite literally distorting the truth. And if the truth is embodied in Jesus Christ, then the reality is that sin is a suppression of or a distortion of Jesus himself. So what do we do now? What are you going to do now? How hopeless. Every one of us in this room has distorted the truth. We've all suppressed or minimized Jesus while elevating ourselves to the throne room of control through our own hard work. And the paycheck for that sin of suppressing Jesus, that's eternal death and separation from God. That's the payment. But the really good news is that God doesn't want you to pay for that because the thing that got you into this mess could never get you out of it. Your performance got you into it, so your performance will never get you out of it. You know whose performance will get you out of that? You know what the good news is? This makes you smile every time because the good news is that Jesus paid it all for you. Jesus paid the price for you. He went to the cross to pay the penalty. He performed everything that you needed to perform. Therefore, you do not stand and put this armor on yourself. The one thing that we are called to do above all other things, the answer for that is, always has been, always will be, repent and believe. And even that's not a work that you can do. God strips all of our effort away gives you the ability to, to repent and to believe. gives you a brand new heart. Called to repent to believe in Jesus Christ, who through the cross and the empty tomb, he became victorious over our enemies. Jesus literally that day beat Satan's sin in the penalty of the grave for us. And he didn't do it with Facebook posts, protest marches, or political rants. He didn't do it with any of that. Nor do I think Jesus would be involved in any of that. Because there are people that tried to get him to walk into those kinds of things, I would ask him questions. He actually had some really harsh answers at times when it came to social things. Actually really did. And then he goes out the next day and feeds a whole bunch of people with some loaves and some fish. Interesting how Jesus interacts. None of those things that we could get involved in are going to set you or your neighbor free. The truth is what sets us free. That's why the scriptures teach us that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And that's not talking about the knowledge that we have in our heads. It's about personally knowing Jesus, who is the embodiment of truth. He beat Satan, sin in the grave, two sticks, three nails, an empty tomb. His call to us is to repent and to believe. And when we do this, what does he do? He covers and fills us with himself. He covers and fills us with the spirit of truth, covers and fills us with his perfect righteousness, covers and fills us with his presence as the prince of peace, covers and fills us with the ability to believe him and trust him in every circumstance. He covers and fills us with his salvation. He covers and fills us with his eternal, perfect, trustworthy word. He covers and fills us with his very presence so that we may know him personally through prayer. We put on the armor of God as we kneel in full surrender at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb of our resurrected Savior. That's how you put the armor on. It's rest in Christ. That's a whole lot better than work, isn't it? Yeah, I love rest. I love the work too. That's the problem. That's why rest sounds so good. Go read the entire book of Hebrews if you want to hear this theme of rest just fleshed out the truth that Jesus is better. He's better. He's better than anything you could ever want. He's better than anything you ever did wrong. He's far better than anything you ever did right. Okay? So, stand firm, my friends. Stand firm, rooted in who Christ is, rooted in who Christ says you are, and here's what will happen. Your obedience will flow out from under the shadow of that bloody cross and in the doorway of that empty tomb, and you will be enabled to do what? Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, you will stand firm, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would apply this message to our hearts and our lives today as we close in worship, as we celebrate, look to the work of Jesus at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.
As we close, guys, we close with communion together. We observe communion together weekly as a point of what we hear, as a way to respond and apply this message. We need to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus on our behalf. When he died on that cross, he said, it is finished. It's done, it's complete. All of our incompleteness is now made complete in him. I don't know where you've been at as you've been thinking through this sermon, as you've been hearing it. And the sin that you're being confronted with and the hope that you're being given in the cross of Christ and the empty tomb. Apply that to your life. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.